0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Hockey News on the E! podcast presented by BetMGM. I'm Jacob Stoller from the Hockey News alongside Justin Cohn from the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette. And since last episode where we had a far too early uh, winners and losers of the offseason, it seems like we are bulletin board material for the Florida Everblades because they went out and made some signings and went shopping.
1: Yeah. I I like to think that many ECHL teams are just waiting to see what we say about their signings. Clearly we kicked a lot of them into gear because we have seen just an onslaught over the last, you know, eight to 10 days, as you mentioned, the Florida Everblades, the defending champs, they have gone out and signed a bunch of guys, including Oliver Chow, who was one of the players that we really liked throughout last year, particularly during the playoffs, Zachary Sekos, Mike Eskra, and Scott Allen, a defenseman who I, I wanted to bring to your attention because he's one of the more unique players I have come across. He's going into his second season, but he is six foot eight, 265 pounds. And that may be conservative in his measurable. So, my question to you, Jacob, is have you ever come across a defenseman who is six foot eight, 265 pounds? I mean, could be an offensive lineman in the uh, CFL.
0: Yeah, uh, I have not. That is not only quite tall but very wide. So, um, yeah, that's definitely a first for me uh, in encountering. Um, yeah, he
1: he. Just so you know, so he got to the ECHL because uh the Edmonton Oilers were really high on him. So okay. last year he was actually in Fort Wayne, and they had recommended that Fort Wayne take a look at him and then sign him. Um. You know he, he really did improve as the season went along. He's got a big, booming shot. I'd like to see him use that size and that physicality a little bit more, and I think the fans here would have liked that. But still, uh, an interesting player to watch, especially when you see the defending champions take a flyer on him. And they have gone for those big kind of anchor defensemen before. Cody Soule was a, another gargantuan guy that they signed late in his, his career to bring him down there. So uh, I, I like that Scott Allen's getting another chance with the defending champs.
0: And speaking of teams that have sort of ramped up, uh, not only in signings, but just their news around them, is the Trois-Rivier Lions. And we want to bring on a guest here who we're going to bring on here, Andrew Zadarnowski, writer for Habs Eyes on the Prize, and one of the most knowledgeable guys you'll ever find on the Habs ECHL affiliate. Andrew, how are we doing, man?
2: I'm doing well. Uh, Nice to meet you guys. Jacob, Justin, nice to be on the show. I'm very happy to be here very happy to talk about the lines because they've been making uh, the rounds lately in, in terms of news yesterday was a uh, quite an eventful day let's put it that way
0: were you wait just quickly were you ever I just realized this were you ever doing AHL stuff I feel like I've seen you in the Coca-cola Coliseum press box at one point
2: I, I did do uh, some stuff uh, when the uh, Laval rocket were in town or if the okay. St. John's ice caps were in town so uh, my main interests are the Montreal Canadians uh, minor league affiliates. Mm. Hence, why the Lions, um, the Rocket, and ice caps, and dating back all the way to the Brampton Beast, when the Beast were the ECHL affiliate of the Montreal Canadiens. Yeah,
1: Andrew's been sort of like we've never actually spoken, you know, with our, our voices before, uh, <laughs> but we've communicated many, many for many years during email and whatnot. Because I, I will freely admit, Trois Rivières, uh, Newfoundland, they're probably the teams that I. And most disconnected from, you know, that, that I'm least familiar with. And he's been a great resource for me. And I was thinking about it today. I think where we really met was Fort Wayne had a really exciting player about, I guess, four or five years ago named Alan yeah. Lazarchuk. And he was, you know, uh, he's a Polish player. Uh, was playing, I believe, with their national team. I was not real familiar with him. And there was a lot going on here because I like to do a lot of tweets about Lesarchuk. And I would sometimes go to Andrew with, with stupid questions like, hey, I want to I make a, a fun tweet, but I want to do it in Polish. And he would help me with that. But the thing about this is I, to this day, I was always afraid I was going to misspell Lesarchuk's name. And I think I could still do it. L-Y-S-Z-C-Z-A-R-C-Z-Y-K. Yep, like not a lot vowels, of vowels, a lot of consonants. Three Zs, right? Three Zs. Yep. But that's that's what that, like, I was so careful typing Alan Chuck. And I tell you, to this day, I think Fort Wayne fans still want him to come back because he was the guy that came out of, like, nowhere, was really exciting as a rookie, scoring lots of goals yep. from down the right wing. And he loved it here. And I think there's still talk, will he ever come back? But anyway, that's just a little insight into how I got to know Andrew.
0: You know, it's funny, Andrew, with the team being um, newer and, and it's, it's sort of, you know, obviously you mentioned Brampton before, but there's not many Canadian ECHL markets. And as Justin said, there's a disconnect from where his vantage point. But I'm curious for listeners, you tell us, what's it been like? How is it the market, you know, accepted it? How has the fan base rallied around it? And how is the team doing from a business perspective?
2: I, I think the the... There's obviously been a lot of challenges since the franchise was launched. First of all, there was a one-year delay because of the arena wasn't ready. Mm-hmm. Um, but That was almost pulling a homer because that was the year of uh, the pandemic when the season was uh, shortened or canceled or, or whatever, when not all the teams were taking part. So it was actually, um, um, you know, they lucked into that fact that the arena wasn't ready because that would have been a disastrous launch for the franchise, uh, not yeah. being able to have any fans, uh, especially for an ECHL uh team, obviously, you know, your majority of your uh, of your finance comes from ticket sales. So they got luck. they lucked out with that. Um, The initial inaugural season following the COVID year was met with a lot of uh, initial interest from the local fan base, uh, and some buzz in the media as well, just because they'd be associated with the Montreal Canadiens. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's it's quite easy to state that without the Montreal Canadiens affiliation, um, this team would not have much of a chance uh, in the market. Uh, in the c- very crowded Quebec hockey market. Um, th- it, I think things, um, they've been unlucky for the first two seasons because of the level of injuries on the Montreal Canadiens and on the Laval Rocket. As we all know, uh, you know, that kind of, the call-ups trickle upwards and the ECHL teams are left with with the scraps and whatever they can pick up along the way to, to make up their roster. The Montreal Canadiens have had a record-breaking number of injuries two seasons in a row their first two seasons affiliated with the Lions. So it's been a real challenge in that sense. In the first season, I believe they used something like 81, 82 players uh, backfilling from the, uh, the Pro-A League in Quebec. Uh, you know, if you use like baseball terminology, ECHL is double A and AHL mm-hmm. is triple A. There's a Pro-A League in Quebec um, and they were also on, co- on, on a COVID pause. So the Lions had access to all of those players. Uh, that relationship soured last year where the league, the pro-A league, the North American league, as it's called, even though it's purely located in Quebec. So I, I, I love the, the irony of that name. Um, basically would suspend their players five games and find them if they signed a PTO in the, with ECHL to play a game or whatever. Wow. So last season, the Lions were left scrambling, trying to backfill um, roster spots, with players out of the SPHL and out of the senior AAA league in the province as well. So we're talking basically like the highest level of beer league being called up to the ECHL. And obviously the results spoke for themselves. Uh, I think they had a, a disastrous finish to the season. Uh, they were second to last in the league. Um, and fan base, um, I think what frustrated the fan base the most was the lack of consistency in the roster. The, the big turnover that they've seen their first two years. Uh, you know, there was there was no players really to to cling on to in terms of being a fan favorite because there was so much change in the roster. That's how I would describe the initial start of the franchise. And we're entering year three, and I'm I'm pretty much sure that's where the questioning will go now.
1: They uh, they made the playoffs in, in year one, and mm-hmm. and we're 11 games under 500. And, and obviously, you're touching on that. What's the on ice product like? I mean. Uh, have they been successful overall just in terms of, you know, wins and losses in in your mind and have they, uh, have they developed any sort of style yet? I mean, I know we're going to get into some of the organizational changes, but uh, you know, I don't know. How do you describe the lion's style of play? Is there one?
2: In the first year the inaugural team was very strong. Uh, At the beginning, I believe it was in November. They're on a 10 game winning streak uh, going to Florida and sweeping Florida when, when the Lions were healthy, had their full roster, and Montreal was healthy, and Laval were healthy, um, the Lions were a very exciting, fast team. They had players like Alexis Daou, they had uh, Sean saint amand they had, uh, who else was there? Uh, Paul, um, Peter, Aban- Ab- 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 I can't pronounce his name, Italian name, Abandonado. I'm butchering the name, but whatever. sounds <laughs> uh, right. Yeah, they, they had some excellent, like, AHL-level talent on their first two lines, and they were a dominant team where things started falling apart is when all the, the, the COVID uh, cases started happening with the organizations. And, you know, you had a guy like Cam Hillis who uh, on an on a NHL entry-level contract started the season in the ECHL and he found himself playing a game in the NHL just because of a lack of personnel. So there was, there was a huge trickle-up effect. And I think once you had a new player or two new players for every game, uh, the team kind of lost their identity. And the head coach at the time, Eric Belanger, even mentioned he, he, he was unable to focus on building on any systems because he was onboarding new players with every practice. So the team had to develop a, a safe style that was easy to rotate players in and out of the lineup. Uh, and that was his major frustration. And from that frustration, um, it carried over into year two where Belanger uh, quit uh, a month into the season or two months into the season and went back to junior.
0: It's crazy. I mean, the amount of turnover this organization has seen is, is pretty, it's pretty stark, especially even in the league where, you know, turnover is commonplace. Mm-hmm. Pascal Rayum was appointed general manager and head a coach a couple months ago. Now he's off to the AHL. It hasn't been announced yet where he's going, but can you break that situation down for us? Like how did this mm-hmm. happen? Um, you know, where does that leave them now? And, and mm-hmm. are you surprised that this kind of move went down?
2: Um, we would have to back it up uh, a little bit. Uh, Pascal Rioum was assistant coach for Eric mm-hmm. Belanger from since the in- inaugural year, uh, and when Eric Belanger left, uh, the the natural thing would have been to promote Pascal Rioum to head coach and 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 be done with. But that didn't happen. Um, you had Marc Andre Bergeron, the the GM, who n- never coached, who took on head coaching responsibilities, and I believe there was the kind of the relationship between those two men began to sour as the season began to sour hmm. by the end of the season. Um, I remember the, the end of your press conference, uh, both men were there at the same desk, but you can tell that, you know, everything was not all right in paradise. You, you can tell the, from the line, it was a, it was a difficult season. Granted, any difficult yeah. season will wear a man down. Uh, but you can tell that they were not on the same page. Um, and, Pascal Riom was ready to leave the organization. He said his goodbyes to Marc-Andre Bergeron. He said, uh, thank you very much for the opportunity. Don't be a professional about it. And he was looking, exploring for opportunities elsewhere. Uh, and, but that's when the news of Marc-Andre Bergeron's um, dismissal were, came out. And the, mm-hmm. the owners of the team offered the role to Pascal Riaume. Uh, so Bergeron decided to come back to the organization, accepted the role. And since he was in place, uh, I would say that the overall vibe around the organization took a, a 180 degree turn. Whereas things were quite dark and bleak towards the end of last season uh, because of the, you know, the, the way teams were performing and and players leaving to either Europe or just leave, leaving the ECHL to play in the North American League, like voluntarily leaving Double A to play in Single A. Uh, obviously, and we're not talking one player, we're talking multiple players. We're talking a guy like Matthew Brodeur uh, having to retire because of family reasons as well. And it really brought down the whole team's atmosphere. Uh, and the work that Pascal Riom did this summer was rebuild the confidence in the fan base that this team can turn it around. Um, there's been a lot of positive signings. There's been a lot of, uh, you know, key leadership roles coming back for this season. And, uh, and he hired uh, a new assistant coach in, in Ron Shule, uh, a guy who's worked in in hockey for 13 years, uh, always looking for that pro opportunity. For 13 years, he's been in junior. He's coached in junior. He's uh, he was most recently coaching a uh, under 18 AAA team in Montreal. Um, and the opportunity came to join uh, the professional ranks. Uh, and you know, he he came with a lot of positive recommendations. And so that it seemed like the team was turning it around right away. And, you know, players on board and coaching staff on board. And then the news came yesterday that Pascal Riome had taken a role with the AHL and it was an initial shock, but looking back at it, looking, you know, with, with some, with some time to pause, it, it was a different feeling than when berlanger left. It was a different feeling when the players started leaving. It was a different feeling when Bergeron was uh, let go. It, you want people to be promoted from the ECHL to the AHL. Right. No one is in the ECHL to stay there. Everyone wants to improve. Everyone wants to move up. And what, I talked to Ron Shull yesterday. I did an interview with him, uh, article on Habs On The Prize. Um, <laughs> he was absolutely lauding Pascal Riom, absolutely saying what a great guy he is, what a positive experience it was to work with him for the for the six weeks that they worked together. Um and was just nothing but complimentary of the work that Pascal Riom did. And, and, and that's, that, that, to me, speaks volumes on the quality of person that Pascal Riom was, on, the, on, on what he brought to the organization. And the fact that Pascal Riom himself offered the dual role of GM and head coach to, to Ron Shull, uh spoke a lot about what, how Pascal Riom, what he thought of Ron. That tells me that Pascal, who did a tremendous job and left a great impression, saw fit to re- you know that Ron was a proper replacement for. And with that, they brought on Matthew Brodeur back into the organization as a former player turned assistant coach. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have Alex Cousineau as well, who's this rising star on the on the hockey operation side of things for Laval or for for, for, for Trois um, And I think that what this latest change has showed versus different what was different than the Eric Berlanger leaving or Bergeron leaving is that there was a succession plan in place. Yeah. And there was, it didn't feel like it was cobbled together or scrambled together. It definitely felt like it was something that was well thought out and it was a a positive for the organization with a promotion of their man to the AHL. And once he's in the AHL, obviously he'll become the best uh, promoter of the lions uh, at that level.
0: Quick follow-up here. Uh, Justin, is that the shortest tenure you'd ever seen from a GM slash head coach in the off season? I mean, like you're sorry, better yet. Have you ever seen this sort of arrive like promotion and then quick departure in the summer months?
1: It's gotta be up there. I mean, I've definitely seen some coaches and assistant coaches jump ship very early into the sure. season. Or well, it hasn't uh, even started. But but in terms of promotion and then I'm out, uh, I feel like there was one other that that happened, but I'm blanking on it right now.
0: It's rare, though. It's definitely rare. Yeah. It, it wasn't so
2: much as a, I'm out. It was more of a the opportunity came. Even Pascal sure. Riom, when, when he had his press conference, when he was first announced as GM head coach, he, he basically said, I, I decided to return to the Lions to keep hope that one day I'll make it up to the AHL. Right. So he was he was open and honest about the fact that he still dreams of making it up a level.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and hilarious because par- there's a parallel with Ron Shull, who always hoped he would make it to pro and it's both of these men achieving that next stage in their careers that they've been aspiring towards. And that's why there's this whole positive vibe around this is that these men that have put in the grind, put in the hours are achieving in their careers.
1: Andrew, I can remember the, uh, the 2021 season before the lions came, uh, before they played their first game and Fort Wayne obviously won the cup in that, uh, in that 2021 year. And they had a bunch of French Canadian guys on that team, Matthew Brodeur, who you just mentioned, uh, Anthony Nellis. uh, Mm -hmm. There were some other guys. And I know that even during the playoffs, like it was going to be, it was becoming very clear that these guys wanted to go play at home. Um, and of course there was a whole other side part of that, which was, there was no way you were going to get returns on the value of these guys from an expansion team, but that's, that's a whole other conversation. So my question is, does trois Rivieres have, uh, a a big advantage in recruiting? I mean, is it, do you think it's easier for them to get players because they want to play in Quebec?
2: Yes and no. I see it from both points of view, um. Focusing on, on feel or icing a purely Quebec-based or Quebec-born players uh, is difficult because not all Quebec-born players want to play in Quebec. So if, if the Lions aren't careful, what they're actually doing is handicapping themselves from having to pick from the guys who are willing to play in Quebec. Uh, I, think, I think they've kind of softened their stance on uh, you know, the majority of their players having to be you know local players. But certainly at the same time, on the flip side... Um, the the word for ladder in French is Echelle. So I always joke that ECHL is short form for Echelle in French, meaning that for players that have not gone the traditional route of junior being drafted by an NHL team going AHL, NHL, the players that maybe, you know, um, developed late in junior or decide to go to university or are coming out of college in in the States, you know, there's an opportunity for them to play uh, close to their family, close to their friends, on a professional team that still has visibility uh, to, the, to the scouts from the HL, NHL. Like a lot of the guys before would go to, to Europe to play. Once you're, once you're in Europe, you're kind of out of sight, out of mind for the most part. Um, otherwise, they would have to travel to places like you know, Alaska or Allen or, or you know, far out places to, to try to ply their craft. Uh, but that's not always easy for people, um, or for, for for French Canadians, to to adapt to. I mean, Fort Wayne, you know, they had an excellent little the clique of, of French Canadians, and I'm sure that was very um, homely for them. They appreciated each other's companies for sure. But for for one guy to come out, you know, go out to Texas or something, he might feel isolated and and not be in the right mindset to excel. So I think being able to have that team in Quebec is is an opportunity for players that are. You know, want to play close to home, but it's also uh, an opportunity for the fan base to have a team they can kind of, you know, really um, sink their teeth into in terms of you know feeling like this this team represents us.
1: Um, so the the Lions and last season the Lions, the Newfoundland Growlers, the Iowa Heartlanders were all the same ownership group. Uh, now we know Iowa has been sold. I'm sure that you can shed the light on what is the current, um, you know, what's going on with the ownership group of what had been those three teams? What's the current state of that? And, and how is that moving forward?
2: Yeah. Deacon, Deacon Sports and Entertainment is the, the, the legal name of that entity, uh, fronted obviously by Dean McDonald, a, a Newfoundlander uh, businessman who's, uh, you know, who, who's, you know, is, is a owner of the Growlers and he saw fit to um, get a couple of more expansion franchises, Iowa and Trois-Rivières, really trying to expand his footprint into the CHL. Um, last year, the, t- the, the organization ran into financial difficulties. Um, you know, Iowa wasn't drawing as many fans as they would hoped. Uh, Trois-Rivières was also having some trouble you know, uh, during the season to, to draw many fans. But Just a total side note, but it's funny. For Trois-Rivières, their two highest attended games were the first game of the season. You see my hands here? And the last game of the season. <laughs> and everything in between was a bit. Right. But the, the last game of the season actually drew, I think outdrew the inaugural game, which shows that the fan base still believed and still wanted it. But uh, going back to the ownership group, um, yeah, this year, uh, you know, last year, the, the, the corporate credit card wasn't clearing. Marc-Andre Bergeron had to pull out his own personal card a couple of times on the road to right. get like, things paid off. Um, players were always paid on time, but there was you know that, that comes out of the hockey budget. but things that came out of the, uh, the ownership budget like uh, um, sponsorship costs or any kind of um, uh, you know uh, vendors that they used for, for any kind of promotional stuff, th- those there was, it was there was news articles coming out that they weren't being paid on time and there was a lot of debt. There was also the big debt to the city to pay the rent for the arena. So obviously there was a lot of, Negative talk around what's happening there. This past summer, yeah, the Iowa Heartlanders were sold off. And as of yesterday, uh, Mathieu Vachon, who works uh, for the local paper in Trois uh, Rivières, the Nouveliste, he reported that uh, the Lions are essentially sold now to a local uh, ownership group with uh, an external partner. Um, They're just kind of working through the paperwork right now. So as it comes out, at the beginning of the season, at the beginning of the next season, uh, Deacon Sports and Entertainment will be back down to a single team, Newfoundland, where they're going, where they'll be focused on building that team, and uh, Lions should be under uh, local ownership. Start, come start the season.
1: And, and just one real quick follow up because, and we've mentioned this on the show before. I mean, of course, the pandemic also plays a big part in all of this. But one of the interesting things was when Newfoundland came into the league they were subsidizing the travel of mm-hmm. the visiting teams and that arrangement stopped last year. I mean, I don't know what you've heard on that, but what I was always told was, you know, they basically had to start dipping into the league, uh, basically the rainy day fund for stuff like that. And I, I mean, it's just an interesting thing because that is one of those questions I get a lot is, wow, mm-hmm. you got to make the, the trip up to Newfoundland. How's that work? Well, when they were paying for it, it made some sense, but now everybody's paying for it. Yeah. There, there's no amphibious bus. They'll
2: take you to the Island. So you have to fly in Um, from what I understood. The league was also subsidizing that travel somewhat in the inaugural years. I don't know what's changed since then, but I know that there's a, a local hotel in St. John's that's owned by Dean McDonald or partnered with Dean McDonald that all visiting teams would use. And and that was part of kind of the arrangement that visiting teams had a hotel to stay at, uh, at a reduced cost. Um, I don't know what's happening since then. Obviously, Travel costs to Newfoundland are higher than any other ECHL team, just because there is no bus travel. The yeah. tradition, the traditional mode of transportation of the ECHL, um, and and that's that's going to be a hard thing to, to to get around. You know, given Newfoundland is is not drawing large crowds, it's one of the lower drawing teams in the league, along with Trois Rivieres. Um, to to make up that economic difference will I think will be a continued challenge for them.
0: Absolutely. Good stuff. Andrew Zadanarski of Habs Eyes on the Prize joining us. Thank you so much, Andrew. We hope to have you on again. Perfect. Glad to be here, guys. Uh, Anytime. Take care. Cheers. Justin, just quickly, have you ever heard of that whole, like, coaches or GMs having to front the bill on a road trip? (laughs) (laughs) I,
1: I have heard of it, just not in about 20 years. I mean, when I used to cover some other leagues like the United hockey league, and maybe even the second iteration of the international league, there were always some teams that were, are they going to make payroll or not? And then Mm. you would maybe hear some stories. Now where I really used to hear it was in other sports, like indoor football,
0: Oh, okay, indoor foot,
1: not, not arena football because I'm not saying like the, the AFL, but when you got into like AF two and some of these other little leagues that I've covered some teams in, I mean, you just, Every week you didn't know who was going to get paid, if the game was going to be played, if the team was going to show up. And there were stories about coaches like, yep, just put, you know, 20 rooms on my credit card and we'll sort it out later. And hopefully I get my money back. So yeah, definitely you don't want that going on at this level, though.
0: You know, usually what happened a level like the SPHL, which has actually rebranded. Um, they got rid of the acronym just like the ECHL. And Justin, you got an opinion about it, apparently.
1: Well, I mean, this is for people who have followed me on social media for a long time, I mean, it, it is a guaranteed laugh whenever we bring up the fact that the ECHL is no longer an acronym, okay? It used to be East Coast Hockey League, but they rebranded several years ago and they said, we are just going to be the ECHL because our we don't want to forfeit our brand identity, but we no longer want to be re- regarded as just an East Coast League. Now, why that's mm. funny is like nobody abides by it. So right. oh, every yeah. every it's week the there's, the there's, there's some player yeah. who calls it the coast. But even worse is when you have a coach or a GM call it the East Coast League or something like that. So I, I always thought it was stupid. I always felt like if you're going to rebrand, then just wipe it away because this is never going to work. You're never going to get people to stop calling it ECHL. But there are other examples of it working. NASCAR is the most famous one. NASCAR used to be an acronym as well, no longer. Now it's just NASCAR. I don't even personally even remember what NASCAR stood for. Right. Um, so, but I had to laugh when I saw the SPHL do this because they actually uh, mentioned the ECHL having done this before in their press release which implies that it was a big success when the ECHL did it. I would argue it's not necessarily a success because people don't abide by it. But look, covering A hockey now since 20, since 1999. Uh, and I'll tell you a quick little funny story. Um, you know, I, I often feel like people at this level, sometimes they don't see the forest for the trees. They don't understand branding or at least not like I think they should understand it. Are you time- me?
0: Are, are you talking about me? I'm right here from last episode with the whole fighting and me not understanding the business of the game.
1: No, 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 I mean, you'll, you'll
0: never understand that. <laughs> uh, no, no. I'm just talking
1: purely brand. <laughs> right. Here. Um, so sometimes you'll have teams that come up with kooky names and maybe people don't know uh, yeah. where that team actually plays. Now that has not been quite as bad lately. Although I would say, There was a team in the Federal League that I think was called Vermilion County, like anybody in the world has any clue where Vermilion County is. But let me tell you a quick story. So I used to cover the United Hockey League. Yeah. And there was a team called the BC Icemen. Okay. Now, I tell you BC Icemen, you probably automatically assume that team plays where? BC. Yeah, British Columbia. British Columbia. Okay. No, it was not British Columbia it was Broome County, New York. Okay. This is where Binghamton is. This was the Binghamton Iceman. Okay. Too. They have, they have had teams in Binghamton forever. If you go yeah. to a game in Binghamton, you see retired numbers, famous names, play guys that played for the Rangers, all sorts of stuff. So I had to go out to cover some games in, in Broom County. And it was really bugging me. And, and I found that a lot of my readers had no idea where it was And so we had a meeting in our newspaper and I said, can we just call them Binghamton? And that's what we did. So we decided we were going to call them the Binghamton Icemen. Now, Fort Wayne then was a two newspaper town. The other newspaper followed suit. And then I noticed the two newspapers in the Quad Cities followed suit. And pretty soon the entire every media outlet covering this league started calling them the Binghamton Icemen. Even though everything on the league, even though the team called themselves the BC IceMen, okay. So then the next year, I was like, "Well, while we're at it, nobody knows where the heck the Mohawk Valley is because there was yeah. another team called the Mohawk Valley Prowlers." Sorry, quick thing, Justin. Did the team ever make a comment like about it or <laughs> um, not directly? But Got but it. we'll get All to right. that. All right. So there was another team down the street playing in Utica called yep. the Mohawk Valley. Prowlers. I'm mm-hmm. like, come on, it's Utica. So we started calling them Utica, and then everybody started calling them Utica. And I think there was one or two other teams there. So the punchline of this story is this
0: <laughs>
1: the league meeting, the United Hockey League meetings were being held that summer. Mm-hmm. And an owner who I happen to know says, can we talk about something? Because I think we have a branding issue here. <laughs> if people in our league don't actually know where the teams play, and the reporters covering the league won't actually abide by it. Maybe we should talk about it. And the commissioner of the league, who is Richard Brosall, if you've seen any of the Danbury Trashers um, documentaries, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that guy, Richard Brosall <laughs> turns bright red, stands up, punches the table and says, I don't care what the heck Cone says. Everybody knows where the Mohawk Valley is. I love my that. phone started ringing off the hook that week because this is a league meeting. Like I'm not supposed to know anything that happens there, but so many people thought this was the funniest thing they had ever heard that people were calling me saying, you're not going to believe what Richard Brosell just did. He just punched the table and said, I don't care what Cohen says. Everybody knows where the Mohawk Valley is. So here we are 20 plus years later. I still get phone calls every now and then random people. They'll be in Utica and they'll just call me and they'll be like, you're not going to believe where I am. I'm in the Mohawk Valley. And you know, everybody knows where the Mohawk Valley is. So, so stupid story, but it speaks to something that I still think is a little bit relevant to this day, that teams branding is important. Okay. You know, so think about it. Do are people gonna be confused by SPHL? Are they gonna keep calling it the Southern Pro League, even in Peoria? I think they will. Probably. So why do this? But but that's where we're at.
0: Before we sign off, uh, the three ice championship just took place. Lots of note- notable players from the ECHL from last year. Uh, Hank Crone, the MVP and um, rookie of the year, scored the winner in the championship game. Former ECHL goalie, even McAdam was the MVP. Uh, other guys were, you know, as well, Colton Hargrove, Zach Solo, Tim Dottere. Um, Tell us about three ice. And we've talked a bit with Pete McArthur, who's on, but just tell us about three ice and kind of, the offseason regiment it is for a lot of guys well
1: that's why i wanted to bring it up because one of the great moments of the show was pete MacArthur talking about how his team was so bad in three on three overtime even though he played in three ice uh so i thought it bared mentioning yeah a lot of guys like brandon hawkins playing in it and you know why i think it's interesting is you know hockey has now become really a lot more year round i definitely remember uh a lot of years where players, you know, when the off season came, that was time for rest. That was time for surgeries. That was time for, you know, just brushing up on some stuff. But now you see guys, you know, as soon as the ECHL season's over, maybe they're playing in three ice. Uh, A lot of guys I know were playing in something called the cap city summer elite league, which is in Ohio. There were guys like Anthony Petrozelli, JC Campania playing in that. So one of the questions that I think bears some discussion, if not today sometime is you know if you're a team are you okay with your guys playing in the offseason because no matter how you cut it it's a good question there's there's going to be a risk of injury so if you're just let's just say Fort Wayne and you've got Anthony Petrozelli, even though he's not coming back next year um and he's he's out there playing in a couple leagues you know and what if he suffers an injury I mean you're not on the hook for any of that but it can change the direction of your franchise but the flip side is is really none of these these contracts in the ECHL are guaranteed. You never know what's going to happen, and you need to be able to rebuild on the fly anyway.
0: Well, quick question: Is there hitting in through ice? That's a great question. That I because don't I don't well, think
1: there's much hitting. I don't. I mean, it's I guess, three on three, so uh, I don't remember. What I, mean,
0: I guess yeah. the argument would be like, sure, there's a risk, but there's also a risk when they're lacing up the skates and and training, you know, and maybe doing three on three with summer skates or whatever so i guess you know even if there is hitting which i'm gonna doubt i don't think that guys are trying to you know run each other and get anyone hurt. yeah it's it's a
1: fair point but i guess my mind i think think you raise a good point though i I do high high ankle sprain you know high ankle sprain skating and it's messing you up come october and camp
0: Uh, yeah no i I think you're right i mean you know it's funny in, in basketball right you know at the minor league level there's summer leagues and even in baseball right there'll be you'll play like spring ball and then summer in different countries. So I'm curious to know if that's ever been a situation where teams have said, no, you can't go do that or whatever. Um, But I, I would um, assume that teams, let me know what you think about this. Teams probably think that the reward, at least for now, barring, you know, star getting injured, the reward probably outweighs the risk in terms of them being better. But I, mean, I
1: don't know that they have any say. I mean, you know, I think it's you're a right. Very rare player to my knowledge that would, I, I don't know that anybody can have a contract that lasts during the summer. So I don't know that no. they, they have any say in it. You know, no. they can nod, nod, wink, wink, say, Hey, you know, if you sign a guy early in the summer and, you could probably prevent them from going and doing it. But no, I don't think anybody cares. And I'm not saying in any stretch of the imagination, you make a good point though, that it's an issue, but it is interesting to me because I definitely remember guys were just sitting around all summer, you know, they were going to the gym, they were getting some skates in, but now you look at a guy like Brandon Hawkins, he's playing all the time. Like he just never stops playing. And Alan Lesarczyk, who we talked about before now he's in Europe and and whatnot, but he's playing all the time. And I just think, players now they just enjoy playing and there are ways that you can get money and you brought up basketball you can play in the basketball tournament now and you know compete for a million dollars so how are you not gonna go do that in the summer you may not be familiar with that but it's oh, yeah uh, yeah so you know there's a lot more opportunities it's a lot more fun for viewers to watch you know now we have some stuff to watch during the summer mm-hmm. but there are some layers to it that
0: would be interesting to explore someday absolutely well, I think we're going to cap it here. Uh, thank you again to Andrew uh, of Habs, Eisman Prize, Andrew Sodorowski. Um Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we'll catch you guys next week for some more off-season talk and maybe an interview as well. Till then, we'll see you later. Thanks, guys.